Talk. Talk show. Talk back. Talk radio. Walk your talk. Talk your talk. KGNU Talk. Call in. Call in and talk. Call in and connect. Connections. Friday mornings at 8.30 on KGNU. everyone. Welcome to Connections. I am your host today, Fiona Foster. And I am Rosanna Longobeter. And we are co-hosting the show because it's going to be amazing. So I hope everybody calls us today because we have two people here that are going to show you and tell you about so many things in the universe. The universe. It's a big topic for today. <laughs> I want to introduce them, but I also want to say that I'm really excited to have them both here in person. For me, this is the first show that I've done since the pandemic with in-person guests. I know, and they're both they're both smiling and excited about that. So let me let me introduce them both to you, and uh, we will start our conversation today about the universe. So we have Dr. Marialis Rosario Franco. She hey, welcome. She is a teaching professor at CU Boulder in the Department of Astrophysics and Planetary Sciences. She completed her PhD in 2021. Congratulations. Thanks. And your dissertation was on the detections of exomoons using radio waves and orbital stability studies of star-moon planet systems. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's very cool. And I'm hoping that we'll get into a little bit about what that means for uh, non-astrophysicists like myself. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And then we also have with us Dr. John Keller, and he is the director of the Fisk Planetarium and a teaching professor of distinction with astrophysics and planetary science department at the University of Colorado Boulder. Welcome. Thanks so much to have you. Great to be here. And we're just uh, adjusting our microphones a little bit, so there's a little, a little bit of noise, some of the uh, on-air studio experience that we have here at KGNU. Um, so John, welcome, and Marielis, welcome. Thank you so much for, for joining us. So one of the things that we're going to be talking about today, listeners, is an event that you both are involved with coming up, which is Astronomy Day, um, April 15th co-coming up here very soon. So we're going to talk about that in a moment. But first, I wanted to uh, have our listeners get to know both of you and your experience uh, with uh, astrophysics and astronomy. And so I'd love to start with um, just kind of a bigger topic about what fascinates you both about astronomy and how you got involved with this. Would you like to start, Marilise? Oh, I think you should she's start. She's pointing to me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I um, grew up in Idaho um, many, many decades ago and really was just drawn to the nighttime sky. Um, and it's not special about Idaho, right? It's any any dark location to be able to see the stars and the Milky Way and, and just the universe really inspired me as a kid. I didn't become an astronomer until I was in my 30s. I actually transitioned into that space after teaching high school for a number of years. Um, and uh, but it's it's been a thrill to have a job where I get to work with college students and high school students and middle school kids, just talking about space. Um, it is such an amazing universe we live in. Um, that's really just naturalistically beautiful to me. Um, and the fact that we can know about it from the little photons of light that we collect with our telescopes is pretty magical. Um, how much we have learned and how much more we have to learn. There's like so much we do not know about the universe still. For sure, for sure. Um, in my case. I got really interested since I was a little kid and it I think there was like something that ignited it all and I I give credit to my grandmother um, which gave me a book she gave me an atlas and it showed kind of like a diagram of the solar system but it went beyond Pluto and I got really obsessed with the fact that they did not teach me that in elementary school. They only taught me up to Pluto. And I didn't know about comets or even if there was like other galaxies. And when I saw that diagram that showed another galaxy 
and the comet and other things, I was hooked. And so since then, I kind of knew uh, since I was a little kid. Um, but yeah, there are many aspects about astronomy that make me really excited nowadays. And just like from basic things like knowing that it is photons that give us all of that information, how we can deconstruct light and understand so much about the space just with light and also exoplanets. Exoplanets is something I'm really excited about and I've been excited about for a while. And it, so it sounds like this was an interest for both of you that began when you were, when you were really young. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. Yep. What do you think it, um, what, what do you like, cause I know both of you and we're going to talk about this, your, your work with, with the day, the um, astronomy day coming up. But what do you think it is about, about kids and studying the universe that is, I guess, so compelling, like when you, with your work and, and getting kids excited in astronomy, what do you notice about the way that kids engage with the universe that um, is very particular to them? I think it's that sense of wonder. It's a little bit of that sense of wonder, like a little bit mixed in with a little bit of magic, because if you don't fully understand science, it can seem a little bit like magic, I think, sometimes. So, I don't know. What do you think, John? Yeah, I've experienced, um, you know, astronomy and marine biology and dinosaurs, right, are three things that all kids seem to like. And in all of those, they're going to places you don't normally get to go to. You aren't just in your house. You're not just in your room. You're going either back in time or farther away into space or deep down into the ocean. So you're going to these places that you get to experience, that you get to think about, that you've never been to. And there's, as as you say, magic, magic or magic, but um, also imagination, right? You, mm-hmm. there are many things you can imagine that we still don't actually know, right? That the, as you get the crazy things like black holes and planets, you get to learn more and more about about the universe as a, as a kid. Yeah, I think, um, Marielis, you were mentioning your grandmother giving you a book, and um, my grandfather used to bring the telescope out, and we'd kind of look at the night sky when it was clear, and there is something very magical about um, feeling like you're very small in kind of a bigger universe, and that there's so much possibility out there. At least that has been my experience with looking at the stars. Right, and that can often be that you're more connected to that space, right? You're connected to that universe. Sometimes you can also feel isolated, which is also something we work with a lot with our students. But I, I think we like to emphasize the connection to that universe. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, in the face of the universe being so vast, many people feel so small. And we always try to emphasize, like, you are vast, too, because you are a, pa- a part of the universe. So, I think it's super humbling to realize how huge it is and how... In a way, we are so little, but we are so full of ourselves that we think that we are the center. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) But I just want to, you know, mention these because I had the opportunity to attend to one of the presentations at the FISC, and that's how I met Marialis. And it it struck me when you share your experience, Marialis, of how you came to, to the science. And especially because, you know, we were showing a, a movie in Spanish that has been translated done at the FISC, showing and teaching the black holes. And then you went on explaining and talking in Spanish and explaining to the people there from um, Senderos. It's a Latino group that has been walking around, looking at the stars and doing a, doing a few things. Um, but what struck me is that you said something that I want to bring to our conversation today, that you know, it's the ancient civilizations, the ones that started the science, that the science really started when humans started watching the stars and figuring it out how things work and how is it related to the blue, round place where we live in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Wow. Um, <laughs> I think you even said it better than I did that night. Um, I, uh, and from my experience, I think sometimes it's difficult to find spaces where you can belong to. And so I think 
that experience is not too dissimilar from people with my for people with my background um and so definitely i always like to remind people where all science started i think astronomy is definitely the most ancient science um and so we have been observing the sky for many many years many ancient civilizations did before us and um we should always feel like we have a place there and um definitely i think that started in ancient civilizations and they were putting in the practice of observing predicting and annotating and seeing patterns and trying to use those those patterns to predict what's going to happen the next night where are things going to move how things are going to rise and set in the sky and that is very much the basis of science is observing noticing patterns and then making a prediction and trying to see whether that prediction was correct if it's not correct then change your prediction and i think that is most definitely where it all starts um yeah i don't know john uh also teaches ancient uh astronomies at cu and so he could also probably share a bit about that yeah and i'm <clears throat> super thrilled that maria lisa and i will be co-teaching that class um in this coming fall semester um our ancient astronomies of the world course but uh but yeah building up on all of that and actually what you were asking fiona I think it's that same sense of wonder that inspires kids to be wonder about the sky that has that has inspired cultures forever, right? Every 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 human yes. culture has always looked up at the sky and wondered, looked at the earth and wondered and wondered for the patterns and tried to figure out the connections. And those have changed, right? They've grown and evolved and and people have been open to those changes in the cultural ways so that we can have better and better understandings of the mystery that we live in. Um, we could talk in detail with any callers about, you know, specific cultures and ways that they have used the stars, but there's a lot of importance of both understanding the sky, connecting to the sky, uh, using it for political purposes, right? People, there's there's many stories of people using the stars for good reasons and bad reasons <laughs> uh, to, to help control their societies, <laughs> all types of different ways that, that the sky has been very important from a cultural perspective. Mm-hmm. You are listening to Connections here on KGNU. I am one of your hosts today, Fiona Foster. And I am Rosanna Longobetter, and I'm here co-hosting with Fiona, talking with amazing people. Yeah, we're very fortunate to have in the studio with us today. We have Dr. Mariales Rosario Franco, who is a teaching professor at CU Boulder Department of Astrophysics and Planetary Sciences, and Dr. John Keller is the director of Fisk Planetarium and a teaching professor Um, within the Astrophysical and Planetary Sciences Department at the University of Colorado Boulder. And like John just mentioned, as we were chatting, we'd love to hear from callers and also emailers today. 303-442-4242 is the number here in the studio. And dj at kgnu.com is our email. And if you have any questions for our guests, indeed about the class that they're teaching, ancient uh, cultures and, and how they mapped the stars and how they observed the world around them. Um, if you'd also like to share your experiences with uh, astronomy, astrophysics, your experiences with FISC, uh, please give us a call. Please join our conversation, 303-442-4242 or dj at kgnu.com. Fiona, this is a, you know one of those shows that I get happy I get excited it goes takes me back when I had my little kids and we used to go to the planetarium and uh, they get so into that you know then they ask you to put the stars that shine so that they can go to sleep and this and that but Mm -hmm. I want to go back to you know to the importance of what CU is doing in the FISC trying to really bring the science to spark the you know, the curiosity in kids. And, and you know, the majority of the time, sadly, our kids are in, in screens. They are not looking outside the sky to understand, you know, at night how everything works. And I'm curious about this class that you're going to be teaching because I want to ask you, which one is the first civilization that was looking at the stars? Which, which one you're going to be starting to explain to the students that that's the first one? Um, yeah, so the the first evidence we have of people looking at stars goes back to forty thousand years ago, right? There are caves. There's these. There these are these are cultures that 
we don't even speak with anymore, right? Because uh, these are cave drawings and paintings in France and other locations in China, um, in South America. And so uh, we, have, we have archaeological evidence that people were watching the sky and making, making pictures and drawing pictures of, of astronomical phenomenon. But I think it really is every human, uh, every human culture. I, I don't think you can say a first or a second or a 14th. Mm -hmm. um, all cultures have built up their own cosmologies. Uh, cosmology, your, your view of the universe, is part of every culture, and it's, it's part of us figuring out where we are in this, in this vast cosmos. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say that kind of synchronously different parts of the world and different civilizations were already looking up and, and having their own interpretations of the night sky and the sky itself and the movement of the objects in the sky. And everything is related, and it's related to harvesting and to how to plan for the future. And that's something that, if you think about it, is genius. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There, I think there was a connection that was a little bit more beyond in the sense that uh, maybe it was more organic and more natural for these people. Um, and it, it really fills me with curiosity. I think it's really, really cool. Um, there is evidence of, depending on the angle of certain moon faces in civilizations in Africa, they would decide when to plant for agriculture and similar things like that. And so there is similar evidence for other civilizations. Um, I think modern science highlights certain civilizations, but um, there there were really civilizations all over the world doing their own thing with the stars. And so the purpose of the class is to highlight those as well. And at that moment when you were talking to the crowd in Espanol, you were telling them that, uh, you know, the Mayans, the Incas, these civilizations that where they are connected, you know, the Latinos, the, the Mestizos, the Mec the Chicanos, they can connect with those civilizations. They feel connected. You highlighted that, and everybody felt so proud. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that's, and, that, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, everybody felt, you know, proud to be part of these making of science. There's, um, there's, there's two really exciting eclipses coming up, right? There's a, an annular eclipse in August, October of 2023, and there's a total eclipse of the sun in April of 2024. But the Mayan culture have, there's codex and artifacts and, and um, essentially prediction books, right, from, a th from over a thousand years ago of, of, of very detailed predictions and observations of eclipses um, of, the, of the, you know, the, the, the death and the rebirth of the sun. Um, and also uh, Venus, uh, Ek, the the god of the goddess of the sky, and, and actually mm -hmm. a very very uh, changeable god and goddess of the sky of Mayan culture is totally connected connected to the patterns of Venus's motion. Um, I actually didn't even know this before I started teaching the class, right? But the five petals of Venus, there's five different apparitions of how Venus moves in the sky every eight years, and then it exactly repeats itself exactly eight years later. So. Eight years from now, you can see the exact same Venus in the exact same part of the constellation that it was tonight that Mayans knew about and, and recorded and used and had ceremonies and traditions around those patterns and motions that, that were occurring in, occurring in the sky. And, and, and noticeable, right? If you're patient and, and attentive and care about the sky, you will notice those things. Yeah. We, we sadly can't even see it anymore, right? Because <laughs> our sky is so much more light polluted, polluted yeah. than those skies. Yeah. That's a whole other topic of light pollution. No, and absolutely. It's super exciting, as, as John says. Sometimes we think, oh, uh, astronomical discoveries are owed to modern science. But really, all of these uh, civilizations had their own artifacts and technology to very precisely determine and predict all of these phenomenons. And so... It just really shows a larger connection because we're talking about times before telescopes, times before uh, a more modern technology, and they had their own artifacts and technology that they, that they developed. And it's extremely, extremely interesting. And it does, it does, as a Latina, also fill me with pride also to know that we also have a background that is rooted on science and beyond that uh, th things that maybe we can't explain rooted in a connection with nature 
with earth and us being connected to earth and earth being connected to cosmos and us therefore being connected to the cosmos through earth so um it's it's really great to to have a space to dwell into that and it's it's um exciting to be able to teach that class with john next semester a time before gravitational wave detections exactly (laughs) fiona um i don't know if you want to ask another question because as we are talking about this i also want to make sure to bring a little bit uh, of these sounds of um, a video that was done in Spanish to precisely motivate and bring more diversity into STEM, something that CU Boulder is trying for years already. And um, I think that these kind of things of trying to translate or bring, you know, give more access to with with some, I always like to say, um, language justice concept of bringing, you know, science with a language that feel people feel connected. Um, I think it's it's wonderful. And you're going to be having an event, it seems like, a big event. So if you can talk about that, because then I would like to play a little bit of this video that you sent us that is, like you said, John, going around the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, so there are two things to talk about. The, the first is that a week from Saturday, on, on Saturday, April 15th, we'll be celebrating Astronomy Day or Astronomia de la, de la, uh, Dia de la Astronomia. Um, and this is this is a traditional event that we've held at Fisk for many many years. Um, although similar to you, Fiona, this is the first time in the last four years we've been able to host it. It's an exciting um, moment. Yeah. So summer, uh, sorry, spring of 2019 was our last time we had a, an astronomy day um, because of COVID. So we're very excited to have this um, to re- return this to our community. Um, astronomy day is really focused around bringing the community together around what we've been talking about around the mysteries and wonder of the universe. We have a number of partners helping us with the project this 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 uh, coming Saturday, um, and we can talk more about those details. Um, we also at Fisk, as you were uh, speaking of, um, we have uh, Rosanna. We have um, been making videos part of, as part of a NASA project um, that's called Science Through Shadows or Ciencia de Sombras or Entre Sombras. Um, and this is a project where we are are learning. We're helping teach about eclipses, occultations, and transits alignments of things in the sky. This is the research that I do, studying um, how asteroids pass in front of stars, something called an occultation. Um, And so we have a series of planetarium films and videos that we're making for schools, libraries, planetariums to teach about eclipses, occultations, transits, what we can learn by these alignments of of heavenly bodies up in the sky. Um, So that's the, the video that you're referring to. And all of our videos are both flat screen and full dome um, and they're also in spanish and in english Um, so we'll be doing this over the next three years with that project for nasa so i think we're going to listen to a very a very quick clip of that video so that we can hear some of the ways that um fisk is is bringing bringing this to life Um, but i also before we do that just want to mention our phone number again here in the studio 303 442 4242 and then dj at kgnu.com and you've been listening to our guests talking that was uh, Dr. John you've also been listening to Dr. Marielis Rosario Franco who is a teaching professor at CU Boulder in the Department of Astrophysics and Planetary Sciences. So let's listen to a quick clip of this video. poco frecuentes van a poder verse en octubre del 2023 y en abril del 2024. Se van a poder ver en toda Norteamérica y vamos a poder ver al sol parcialmente cubierto por la luna. En 2023 vamos a estar viendo un eclipse parcial conocido como un anillo de fuego y en el 2024 veremos un eclipse total. Hablemos sobre el eclipse parcial. Soy Marina Lagrava y soy especialista de cambio climático y comunicadora y traductora de las ciencias. Y he visto un eclipse solar total. Mi nombre es Marcel Corchado El Velo. Soy astrónomo aquí en la Universidad de Colorado Boulder. Y en 2024 veré mi primer eclipse total. 
La órbita de la Luna alrededor del Sol no es circular. Es un pequeño óvalo y podría decirse que está un poco lejos o cerca. Cuando la Luna está un poco lejos, se ve más pequeña y no puede cubrir completamente al Sol. Entonces, vemos un anillo de fuego. Al ver un eclipse de Sol, debes tomar muy en serio protegerte los ojos. Este tipo de anteojos oscuros no son los adecuados para ver un eclipse solar, pues realmente puedes dañar tus ojos de manera permanente. Debes usar unos anteojos especiales para ver eclipses. Estos son los únicos tipos de anteojos que realmente van a proteger tus ojos para ver un eclipse solar. Si no tienes lente, puedes usar lo que se conoce como una cámara estenopeica. Esto lo que es, es crear un agujero pequeño y dejar que la luz pase y cuando la luz pasa crea una proyección del sol. Y recuerda, prepárate para un día bajo el sol. Trae tu agua, tu bloqueador, tus anteojos de sol, tus anteojos para ver el eclipse y ven listo para divertirte. Para obtener más información y saber más acerca de los recursos, por favor visita la página web en www.colorado.edu barra FISC, F-I-S-K-E. También puedes ir a la herramienta de Google y busca Planetario FISC Eclipse y allí vas a conseguir todos los detalles que necesitas. We are listening to this uh, video that is explaining about important events that are coming. So, John, if you can talk to this because, you know, about this, because people need to prepare. Mm -hmm. It could be dangerous to, to watch this. But it can also be fascinating and spiritual. <laughs> um, yeah, so we have two great eclipses coming to the United States, coming to North America um, in October of 2023 and in April of 2024. There are going to be two different types of eclipses. Um, the first eclipse in October is called an annular eclipse. And because, as Marina was explaining, because the moon will be slightly farther from the Earth during that time of the eclipse, it will be slightly smaller in the sky. And therefore, it, won't fully, it will not fully eclipse the sun. And so you cannot look at this, you cannot look at the October eclipse without protection, without, without solar protection. Um, these are uh, eclipse classes that you can purchase from uh, known distributors of those eclipse classes. Um, and it's, it, 95% of the sun will be blocked, but there's still 5%, and that's still going to be brighter than 20,000 moons. And it can still uh, hurt your eyes if you don't wear that protection. Um, there will be another eclipse in, in April of 2024, a total eclipse, and if you can get into the path of totality, into that one zone where the moon will fully block the sun, there will be a two to four minute period or window where leading up to the eclipse you have to use protection, protective glasses and not just sunglasses, like eclipse glasses, and after you have to use those eclipse glasses, but for those two to four minutes you can actually take off your glasses and look at the sun and see something that is always there but you never get to see except during eclipses, which is the corona of the sun. Mm -hmm. This is the stream of electrons that are pushing away from, from the sun. And they're always present, but it's a million times more faint than the sun's disk. And so we only see it when the moon is blocking it. And for me, it was a magical space. To, I, I, I only saw, I don't, do you want to add to this? I, I only saw the corona back in 2017 with my naked eye, but it's always there to see something that's always there that you can't see. We have a similar experience with the corona, and so definitely, uh, I've watched a, I've I watched two eclipses, one in 1998, so I was very young, <laughs> and then another one in 2017, and it's definitely a magical experience. I encourage anybody that can to prioritize uh, going into the path of totality and watching an eclipse. It's a uh, completely magical experience um, beyond being able to see features of the sun we don't typically see there are different things that occur at earth on the earth level and so definitely light 
goes out for a bit, temperature goes down by like about 10 degrees. And so if you're in a natural space, it's very interesting to see how nature reacts to it and how insects start coming out and birds start flying around trying to get back home because they think it's already night. And it's eerie, but beautiful and magical and as John said it can be it can be a very spiritual experience as well you know beyond science I want to also appeal to the people that might be in it for other reasons and so that's totally valid it's a beautiful experience that everybody should take advantage of and if we're here on earth and we get to see it we we should just step outside and actually experience it. Yeah, and it's fascinating because you can literally be 99% or 98% partial eclipse, or you can be in totality, and it's and it's literally only 100, 100 meters. Like 100 meters over here, you're not going to see the corona. 100 meters over there, if you're in the path, and the moon fully blocks the sun, these phenomena will will appear. Um, it's, as Marilise says, it's. I mean, and it doesn't happen on a. It happens on a. Like it ha there are eclipses twice a year in different parts of the world, but for each human themselves, where you normally live, unless you're chasing these eclipses, you're only going to experience this once or twice or three times in your life, um, unless you can chase those eclipses, which is a whole other thing you, you could do. Um, so definitely, if if it's possible for the April eclipse to get into Mexico, Texas, up through Detroit, Michigan, uh, Toledo actually, and then up into uh, Buffalo, New York, and, and New Brunswick. If you can get into that one small zone on that April date, um, which I forget is April 14th? I, I, sorry, it's an April date. Look it up on the web. It's in April. Um, if you can get into totality on that day, that's, that's phenomenal. If you can't, which is also acceptable and understandable, um, getting protective glasses to watch the partial eclipse is also, you know, it's equally, the, the alignment is still happening, even if you don't get to see the corona from where you are. Mm -hmm. You are listening to Connections here on KGNU Boulder, Denver. I'm your host today, Fiona Foster, and I also have my um, other host, Rosanna Lungo-Betcher here. And we are talking to Dr. John Keller, who you were just listening to, and Dr. Marialis Rosario Franco. And if you have any questions, comments, thoughts that you want to share with us, listeners, 303-442-4242. We have these astrophysicists today with us in the studio, which is so fun for both of us. And if you have questions or thoughts about the class that they were talking about earlier in the hour with the ancient civilizations and astronomy, which was a completely fascinating topic, or your thoughts about eclipses, really anything you want to join the conversation, please uh, call in and share your experience, 303-442-4242 or dj at kgnu.com if you're not near a phone right now. Call us and ask questions about, you know, black holes or how the universe is connected to all those stars that we're watching all the time. For me, you know, I always like to look at the moon. The moon yesterday was amazing. Um, how does the moon relate to all these that's a question that I will have, and I will really love for people to call us and ask about the event, because it seems like you have many pieces in that event, and I want to participate. Is it also for adults or only kids? Yeah, so the event we're talking about is a Astronomy Day, mm -hmm. and yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, um, uh, John, do you want to... Take this one. Sure. <laughs> the the overarching overview of the overview for Astronomy Day is that um, we are op opening up both Fisk Planetarium and the Summer Bausch Observatory to the public, free of charge for the entire day. Well, not the entire day, uh, from one o'clock in the afternoon until four o'clock, and then from six o'clock in the evening until ten o'clock. Um, it's meant to be just a space for the community to come and to enjoy the universe together, um, and to see things and do activities and think that see shows in our in our planetarium. Um, we're working with many partners this year. We're working with um, uh, Blue Origin, which is one of the commercial spaceflight groups um, that has a has an office in here in Denver. Um, they will be bringing engineers, and they have they are still finalizing lining up an astronaut who has flown a blend along the the Shepard um, rocket for, for Blue Origin. Um, we're also working with Ball Aerospace has a presence of supporting the event. Um, Senderos uh, de Boulder is, is going to have a moon room, the, a room de luna, 
um, that you can speak more to, Marius. Um, but just to finish out the other partners, also LASP, um, the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics, uh, Science Discovery, and then finally um, a, a project called Whimsy are all going to be presenting ideas and, and, and perspectives. That's a, a lot of really great things happening on that day. Um, and I want to come back to all of that. We have a caller. So let's bring our caller up in the studio, and then we'll come back to some more information about Astronomy Day. Welcome, caller. Uh, I don't have your name. Oh, yes, I do. Steve. Steve. Welcome, Steve. Hi, Fiona. Um, this is Steve, and I have a question for your guests. Um, there are many uh, ancient buildings that orient towards uh, the solar cycle. Um, you mentioned planting of crops and so on. Um, and then there are many stones that have other functions, like the Ring of Brodgar and the Kalanish stones, and obviously Stonehenge and the pyramids. And are there any uh, buildings or structures that you're aware of that orient to uh, deeper space objects? Uh, and I'll take my answer offline. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate you calling in. Um, that is a great question. <laughs> um, most definitely, uh, I've gotten the chance, uh, in part a lot through John, to get more familiar with archaeoastronomy. And so there are definitely many civilizations that oriented their buildings and, are, and developed great architectures to orient them to the movement of both the sun and the moon. And it's actually a practice that um, we still have in modern architecture. Actually, if you go to cities such as DC and you see certain monuments, you wonder why they are placed the way they are placed. But in reality, it's because they are very much aligned with the rising of the sun in certain times of the year um, and the rising also of the moon and the setting of the moon and all such things. I am familiar with this um, architectures uh, also taking place in certain civilizations. We have some also here in our continent, in, our, in, in the U.S., and also some in Mexico and even in the rest of Latin America. Um, I am not too familiar whether some of these have been aligned with deeper space objects. That is an, an amazing question. John, do you know if some of them have been? Sure, yeah. So um, it, thank you for the question, Steve. Um, in addition to solar alignments, there's, as you said, lunar alignments. And I just want to point out there's a really other fact, and you're asking uh, yeah, uh, Rosanna about the moon. Mm -hmm. There is a, a phenomenon known as the major standstill of the moon, which happens every 18 years. And there is a, a monument or a, a, a sacred space in southwestern Colorado known as, um, as Chimney Rock, where there's a kiva that um, is starting next year in 2024, um, the moon only rises between those two pillars of Chimney Rock during this time of the year. It will repeat itself every 18 years. It has to do with the alignment and the motion of the moon relative to the motion of the Earth around the sun. That's a, a, a not yet answering Steve's question, but I want to point out that those lunar alignments of, of the sandstill is an important phenomenon. Um, Steve's question is around this idea of things beyond the solar system, and so there's a whole history of whether you're going to be doing your alignments based upon the solars, the motion of the seasonal cycle of the sun, or the motions of the stars and the alignments of the stars. And so um, the best, the, the most obvious evidence of deep space objects, I'm, I'm not going to go that deep, but the, the star Sirius is six light years away, and Sirius is the brightest star in the sky, and cultures throughout time have noticed Sirius because it's so bright. Um, and so there are many, many markers of, of alignment. So, for example, in, in, in Egypt, there are pyramids in Egypt that have uh, star tunnels that point up towards Sirius, and they were aligned with Sirius. However, they were built 4,000 years ago, right? And with these observations, which aren't solar or seasonal, it's related to stars, the Earth actually wrote, changes its the tilts, the direction that its axis is pointed at over a 26,000-year cycle. So in the last 4,000 years, which is one... Uh, 20% of that cycle, mm -hmm. um, Sirius is no longer in the same place, right? It doesn't align up with the with the alignment star in the pyramid anymore. And so these um, sidereal, they're called sidereal alignments, they, you, you, can, you can take a planetarium and you can go back in time and say, well, it was aligned 4,000 years ago. It's not aligned anymore. And so those types of motions, which involve 
stars and the Milky Way and other deeper space objects, they are all affected by precession. And so when you do those mappings, you need to know when the architecture was built to figure out what the stars were doing to see if there is an alignment. If you used today's stars, you wouldn't see an alignment in those, in those structures. This is really, really fascinating. All of the all of the information that people knew and then and then what we know now about how the earth moves and tilts and all of that. Is there you were mentioning earlier in the conversation, maybe this is a kind of a follow up to Steve's question, the lack of telescopes. And, and I'm curious about the impact that that has or even doesn't have on ancient cultures ability to understand the stars. So what's the role of telescopes? In, in how we understand the stars and how that makes our understanding of astronomy different from, from ancient cultures? <clears throat> so I think the role of telescopes, um, it, it all starts when Galileo decides to point it at the sky. And so Galileo is credited with sometimes creating the telescope, which is incorrect. <laughs> the telescopes existed already for navigation. And then Galileo was the first one to decide to point it at the sky. And I think that's where it all starts. And initially, it was a way to look more closely at the stars versus naked eye. Um, but uh, it's developed into really deconstructing light and instruments to deconstruct light, to collect light, and then deconstruct it and analyze it. And so in modern science, currently, we have telescopes that are attuned to specific wavelengths of light. And so beyond visible light, we have different types of um, electromagnetic waves or light as well that uh, travels at specific wavelengths. And so we attune these telescopes to pick up particular wavelengths. And so by that, I mean um, radio wavelengths, like the ones we use here, um, go at a particular um, uh, at a particular frequency. Uh, and we attune those telescopes to pick up those frequencies. And we also have other frequencies that are more attuned to infrared light, for example, like the James Webb Telescope that is in space since like a couple of years ago, or maybe last year, was it? Um, and it's been doing groundbreaking observations from up there in space. And so um, it depends kind of on the frequencies that you set your instrument to pick up, and then you can pick up different types of light. And with that different types of light, you can tell a lot of information from what's emitting that light, such as, composition, chemical composition, um, uh, temperature, and so on. Uh, John, would you like to add to that? Yeah, and, and Mari Lisa is a radio astronomer, right? So she's using oh. radi radio waves to do that type of science. Um, there were observatories before Galileo. They built, these are all naked eye observatories. And so there's a long tradition in many cultures of actually watching the passing of stars to understand seasons and latitude and all of those issues. But as Marielise was saying, Galileo was the first Western astronomer to use a telescope to break down. And, and I think the most one of the most important things I talk about in our class is that prior to Galileo, right, we had earth, air, fire, water, and ether, or quintessence, the fifth element. Quintessence is the fifth element, it's the heavens. And the heavens were fundamentally different from earth, air, fire, and water, which were the terrestrial elements. Mm -hmm. And Galileo helped showing, showed with a telescope that those quintessent things actually looked very terrestrial. Craters on the moon, sunspots on the sun, uh, phases of Venus. These are all phenomena that they hadn't, had not been noticed before the telescope was used. And that helped just break down this, 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 this disconnection between the heavens and the earth which had some issues with the Catholic Church dealing with that at the time. But, you know, it, 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 we've, we, we've all progressed in that, yeah. in that understanding <laughs> since then. And that's a, that's a whole, whole additional show. Before we bring up this next caller, I just wanted to say people can um, interact with telescopes, is that correct, at the Astronomy Day on April 15th. If they want to come, presumably between 6 to 10, they can. And if they've not had an opportunity to look through a telescope, will this be an opportunity for them to do that? Actually, but, uh, uh, both, both in the evening after sunset, Ooh, but, all, but also from 1 to 2, because Venus is, is trailing the sun, and, or sorry, leading 
trailing, trailing the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, and the moon is also up. The moon is, the moon is ahead of the sun, so it will be up from 1 until 3, the crescent moon. And Venus is trailing the moon and trailing the sun. And so both of those planetary objects will be visible during the daytime from, the teles- from our summer spouse observatory. And then during the evening, um, there will be planetarium shows and an astronaut talk from Blue Origin. One of the Blue Origin astronauts will be speaking um, and the engineers from Blue Origin that evening. But then there will be telescope viewing at Summer's Bash Observatory upstairs. That's amazing. Totally free. Yep. Anyone's welcome to come. Let's bring up our caller, Jim, here in the studio. Welcome, Jim, to Connections. Hey, I found a neat book somewhere here in Boulder by Neil deGrasse Tyson called Accessory to War. And it says there's this tension between war with technology helping wage war mm-hmm. and on the other hand um, wonder and the magic and he particularly talks about uh, Colorado what with the space command and NORAD and all the different air force bases and on and on and some people say you know 50% of our budget goes to war making so um, it's pretty interesting he, he does mention that the amount that goes to astrophysics is really tiny compared to what goes to the Department of War. And it's a book that I sort of, you know, it's interesting to read because it's it's all about the wonder of war, but how much we spend. And actually, he has a daughter that was the same age as the daughter that uh, the young woman who had napalm dropped on her by a U.S. jet in Vietnam. And once when his daughter was running from the bathroom, he sort of got the images confused in his mind. so if you're in a scared mood, which is probably not a good place to be, but right now some of the military-industrial space complex is trying to talk about how they can win a nuclear war and plan for two nuclear wars, one in China and one in Ukraine, and not to negotiate right. a yeah. settlement. So um, I would think that I don't know how to handle it because it's such a toxic subject if so many jobs are dependent on it. Right. But it's sort of like fracking and yeah. nuclear power. Jim. It's dangerous. Uh, like the Ukraine war. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Jim. Yes. Okay, bye. Thank yeah. you. Build, building upon that, I, I think it yes. is important to... Uh, thank you for the call, Jim. It's important to note that uh, there there are technological advances that unfortunately... that sorry, War is... I'm not, not promoting war, but the technological advances that come out of the defense work that has happened does lead to advances in science and science understanding, which was part of what Neil deGrasse Tyson is talking about. Um, we have a Hubble Space Telescope and now a James Webb Telescope, but a lot of that technology came from the other telescopes that are looking down. Mm-hmm. The difference between the Space Telescope and those spy satellites is they point up. Mm-hmm. And so we're using the technologies from those places for a different for a, a space of wonder. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is it is a there's a tension right there's a tension mm-hmm. between the socio socio political and human issues of war versus the technologies that come from it. Yeah, absolutely. There is some sort of intertwine between the development of technology and military motivations. And I am familiar with the Arecibo Observatory, which was our great radio telescope in Puerto Rico. I am from Puerto Rico, very proud Boricua, uh, born and raised. And so for 50 years, we had the Arecibo Observatory and its beginnings and its its foundation is in military motivations. And so it started out, out as that. And then when it was, well, no longer necessarily serving military, it, it moved on to become a great science facility and so whether we want it or not there is a lot of intertwine between the development of technology and those motivations mm-hmm. Marialis and that's precisely you know why we love um, producing here in KGNU because we have people calling and asking these amazing questions and we have two other callers and you know Jim place that question and I was going to also bring the question about pollution mm. in in the sky so but I think that we need to honor our callers and Fiona are you okay with yeah, me bringing absolutely. Kathy to to ask a question today Kathy your honor you have a question this is Catherine can you oh. hear me yes hi. Catherine hi Catherine yeah sorry the, oh great yes welcome 
thank you. I'm so fascinated with this program, and I plan to go to the planetarium on the 15th. It's so exciting. It's such a great local resource, SSU planetarium. And I also noticed we have our own um, satellite that's between Boulder and Lyons that I think also is specific to receiving these lights and radio frequencies. And I would love to know more about that. But my question is, what is the story about our moon? Because I understand that's the one celestial body that kind of flows differently through the universe. And people talk about the dark side of the moon and we never hear that or we never see it. And it's all just quite fascinating, some of the, quote, conspiracy theories around the moon. Because as women, of course, we are controlled by that with our cycles and our reproduction. And we've all felt affected of the beautiful full moon last night where we all stay up more, et cetera. So I was wondering if you guys could ask answer that question. I'm happy to start answering that question. And John, feel free to add anything and interrupt me. Um, yeah, the story about the moon. Well, the first thing is that its size in comparison to the size of our planet it's, is very large. And so typically when you look at other moons in a solar system, um, they are much smaller when you compare those size ratios. And so... It all starts also in its conception. It's how did it form? It's such a different process than we know other moons form. So instead of forming in situ or around Earth, the most accepted theory is that of giant impact, where an asteroid hit Earth and then the debris from that asteroid and the debris from Earth from that impact um, started orbiting around Earth and then it conglomerated onto what the moon is right now. And so uh, beyond that, there are so many cool aspects about the moon and you mentioned the far side of the moon. So the moon takes 30 days to complete a rotation around Earth but it also takes 30 days to complete a rotation around its own axis. And so it results in the same face of the moon uh, facing us cons consistently. And so we have the near side, which is always facing us. And John, I'm not sure if you want to add about that, but also another cool thing is the uh, tidal forces that the moon has on Earth. And so Earth experiences tidal forces from both the moon and the sun. And so those tidal forces result in many phenomena here on Earth, and they are responsible for tides on the ocean. And I think through those tidal forces and the gravitational presence of the moon, I'm a big believer that the moon is very much an agent of gravitational stability. On Earth, thanks to the Moon, we have we do not have a crazy um, axis change, and we have a, a, a very long time, long scale precession time. Um, and if the Moon wasn't there, then our our changes in axis tilt would be very wild, and so seasons would be different, tides would be different. Maybe even the development of human evolution would be different since we come from, or at least like um, evolution basis, humans coming from water and then eventually moving onto Earth. And so definitely tides have a lot, a lot to do with that. So the moon is a very, very interesting object that has been connected to us for a long time. That is, a, I think, a really beautiful answer to Catherine's question. I do. We do have another caller here on the line, John, and I, so I want to bring him up and let him ask his question. We've got about five more minutes left of our show here on Connections. Welcome, John. You are on Connections. What's your question today? Yes. <clears throat> Thank you. It's more of a comment, really. Um, Excellent. When I was growing up, I was more interested, I was really interested in nature. And as a boy in high school, I was sort of science challenged and not really interested in, in the sciences and didn't do well in them. Philosophy of science in college really connected me, but, but when it comes to this glorious business of the universe, what really brought me into it was the PBS shows going back six, seven years or so, eight years, and the BBC shows that 
opened up the universe. I mean, I just <clears throat> can't talk about it without getting moved, actually. Yeah. Yeah. What I want to say, I'm a man of the, of the literature, history, humanities, and uh, now I'm so, so enjoy the fascination of what you're all talking about. And mm-hmm. I particularly like the being grounded in the details of how it is that we do this science, that is, these different magnets, uh, what you were explaining earlier about the waves and light waves and that sort of thing. Yeah. I, I love your comment, John. That's actually part of what I love about my job. Uh, part of my role is to be a filmmaker, to be a science communicator, and to make full-dome planetarium films. We've made 17 in the last five years, <laughs> um, and these yeah. are, you know, these are immersive experiences that take us to those places you can't really get to in the universe. And so yeah. it is, it is really special to be able to be able to be part of that. Yeah, thank you, John. I really appreciate you calling in and sharing your experience. And um, we are nearing the end of our show. So I just really want to briefly read out an email that I think due to a technological upgrade, um, John Keller here in the studio has near him on the screen. But this is a an email asking about um, the star of Bethlehem and how it was actually somewhat inconspicuous, but a real occurrence. Um, and can our guests discuss that. So, John, you're nodding. I'll sure. take yeah, that so over to, to you. Yeah, I think as we were talking at the very beginning of the show, there's a long history of the skies connecting to cultural events and significant events and cultures. Um, in, in the terms of the Star of Bethlehem story, right, there are various hypotheses about what may have been the Star of Bethlehem in scriptures. Um, there was a, a conjunction of three planets in the east, in the western sky at sunset that may that would have looked like those three things. Those three planets together would have been very bright. That may have been the event. There may have been a supernova that may have been seen. There is no direct evidence of exactly what the Star of Bethlehem was referring to, but I think the importance is right. This is an important religious, cultural, spiritual moment that that the writers of scriptures connected to the sky. And so whether it whether or not it was real or not real, it was still an important event enough that bringing the universe into that story is part of what religions and cultures and spirituality have always done mm-hmm. in in a human way. Well, I want to, we just have about three minutes left of our show, so I want to make sure that I tell our listeners where they can go to find out more about Astronomy Day. As often happens here on Connections, we get some fantastic calls. We talk about things we never expected, and that's one of the things I love about this show. And we've been really privileged to have two experts here today with us, uh, Mariales Rosario Franco, Dr. Mariales Rosario Franco, and she is a teaching professor at CU Boulder in the Department of Astrophysics and Planetary Sciences, and we didn't even get a chance to talk about your dissertation, which was on exomoons uh, using radio waves, which is which is fascinating. But um, we did get to hear some of your experience uh, related to that. And then we also have Dr. John Keller, and he's the director of the Fisk Planetarium and a teaching professor with, dis- with distinction within the Astrophysical and Planetary Sciences Department at the University of Colorado Boulder. And so you both are involved in astronomy day, which is happening at the Fisk Planetarium coming up April 15th, which is next Saturday, uh, from 1 to 4, and again, 6 to 10. And are there any last words that you would love to leave us with, either about Astronomy Day or about your work or about our conversation here? And I'll just leave that open to both of you. I would would like the opportunity to just make a call to the Hispanic community, a mi comunidad hispana que hablan español, por favor, lleguen al planetario. Tenemos muchas actividades planificadas para ustedes y tenemos una actividad en particular que que se enfoca en la luna y en las fases de la luna. So we're going to have a room um, where our collaborators from Explorando Senderos of Boulder will be facilitating experiences about the moon phases and will be sharing about their experience when they go hiking during full moon. And so also John has been doing an amazing job as a director of the planetarium and the planetarium itself has been doing an amazing job and the staff there to plan this day and they're going to have many other activities as well. Right, and I would just say come to Fisk anytime, but particularly we're looking forward to having a community experience of, of all of the Denver Boulder metro area. Mm-hmm. So you can look up Fisk Planetarium Day of Astronomy or Astronomy Day, um, but from 1 until 4 and 6 until 10, uh, come on out to Fisk. 
Wonderful. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you both in the studio. Thank you so much. I have been your host today on Connections Fiona Foster, and I also have another co-host who is here. Rosanna Longo-Better co-hosting Connections today, and what a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Talk. Talk show. Talk back. Talk radio. Walk your talk. Talk your talk. KGNU talk. Call in. Call in and talk. Call in and connect. Connections. Friday mornings at 8.30 on KGNU. KGNU.